episode 218, Colonel Kim Casey Campbell. Well, I think what's interesting is when you read the bio, what's not in there is all the mistakes and failures and challenges uh, that I've had along the way. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For information about Kim, her book, and more, look in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake218. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven. Our guest today is Colonel Kim Casey Campbell. She served in the U.S. Air Force for 24 years as a fighter pilot and senior military leader. Uh, Casey has flown 1,800 hours in the A-10 Warthog including more than 100 combat missions protecting troops on the ground in both Iraq and Afghanistan. She's now a keynote speaker and best-selling author. Her new book is titled Flying in the Face of Fear, A Fighter Pilot's Lessons on Leading with Courage. It's available now. So before I tell you a little bit more, thank you for being here, KC. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's real exciting to have you here. It's an honor um, to have you here. And I'll tell everybody, I'm, I'm the... Uh, from a distinguished record, I feel like I'm reading just parts of um, the bio. You can check out um, her full bio in um, the linked page in the show notes. But Casey is a distinguished graduate of the Air Force Academy. She has a Master's of Arts in International Security Studies and an MBA from the University of London. In 2003, Colonel Campbell was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for Heroism after successfully recovering her battle-damaged airplane in an intense Post air support mission in Baghdad. She served in roles including squadron commander, operations group commander, and most recently, Casey has served as a director for the Center for Character and Leadership Development at the United States Air Force Academy. Um, so thank you for your service. And, and again, thank you. Thank you for being here with us today. Absolutely. I'm glad to be here. So um, Casey is, is okay for these purposes, right? Absolutely. Yes, it is. So it's Kim in the bio, Colonel Campbell, but okay, we'll go, we'll go uh, with KC here. Um, before we get into the favorite mistake story, it might be a, a mistake for people to assume that KC stands simply for Kim Campbell, right? Yes. Well, that's usually the easy, the easy answer, the quick answer. Uh, but every fighter pilot gets a call sign. It is a, a bit of a rite of passage. And it happens after we become combat mission ready, meaning that we are cleared to deploy to combat. Uh, after a couple months in our first squadron. And for me, I, I uh, got my call sign. Uh, it, it's an interesting experience because you're not actually in the room when they tell stories about you and come <laughs> up with ideas for your call sign. Yeah. Uh, but I remember walking back into the room and uh, to cheers from everyone because Casey actually stands for killer chick. So that is my call sign uh, shortened to Casey, much easier to say. Now some I imagine you you were okay with this call sign. Some people end up with a call sign that they don't really care for. Is that right? No, I think this one was pretty good. I mean, it was fitting. I was the only female fighter pilot in my squadron, and wow. uh, so it, it was a, a fitting tribute, I think, from the from the pilots in my squadron. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there, there's a lot I want to talk to you about today um, from from your 
um, service and, and your book and what you're teaching and helping people with about leadership. But first, as, as we always do here, once we get nicknames out of the way and call sign backstories behind us um, with the, the different things that you've done, I'm really curious to know what is your what's your favorite mistake? Yeah, well, I think what's interesting is when you read the bio, what's not in there is all the mistakes and failures and challenges uh, that I've had along the way. Um, but I think back to uh, my early days of pilot training. And I think probably one of my favorite, I guess, mistakes, right? It's such an interesting concept because it's super painful and and hard to go through. But uh, I I do realize that I came out better on the other side. And this was um, at the end of pilot training. Uh, we are evaluated on on every ride, but we have some specific rides that are called check rides, which are like big time evaluators in the back seat. You get graded. It all goes into your overall performance. And this was my final ride in the program. And up to this point, I had done reasonably well. I was excited about the end getting near. And this ride is a formation ride, meaning we take off in really tight formation. And then we're supposed to stay in this formation all the way through the ride. We do maneuvers and we know that we're in the right position because we can see the other airplane and there's identifiable features that we're supposed to see. Supposed to. Uh, about, I would say, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes into our work, I started to get the visor on my helmet fogged up. And I was really struggling to see. This was probably because I was nervous and breathing so hard that my visor was fogging up. But it became uh, uncomfortable to look at this other airplane very close to me when I couldn't see all those features. And I knew I wasn't flying well. I was very sloppy. And I finally told my evaluator who sits in the back seat and said, look, I kind of explained what happened. And he was like, no problem. Like, I've got the airplane. He took control of the airplane, moved away, told me to clean my visor and then get back in. So I quickly did what I could to clean the visor, got back into formation. And instead of like really staying focused on what I was doing, I was thinking about the past 30 seconds, the past minute, about all the mistakes that I had made, the sloppiness that I had flown, and I wasn't focused on what I was doing, which meant that I continued to make mistakes. I was not flying well. And it turns out this was probably the worst that I had ever flown, the worst that I had ever performed on a ride because I couldn't let it go. I knew I had made mistakes. I knew I hadn't done well, and I just let it snowball, and it just got worse and worse and worse. Eventually landed, came back in and got the the stern conversation from my instructor, the evaluator who said, Kim, you're a good pilot, but that was a terrible ride. Mm, and yeah. he, he told me, he said, you're going to face challenges in your life and you are going to have to learn to let those mistakes go and focus on the next 30 seconds, not the 30 seconds behind you. Wow. Tough lesson, but definitely my, my favorite one. Yeah. Do Wow. Um, that's a great story. And I mean, thinking back to, for one, like, you know, um, a visor fogging up, like, I mean, it seems like, I, this, I mean, it sounds like that's more of a, a design mistake than a pilot mistake. It seemed like there would be times when a pilot would be breathing heavily. Yeah. Uh, Who knows? I mean, in the end, like, even if it's an external factor, like I still have to be able to deal with it, right? Because we do face in life external pressures and things that are on us and, you know, whatever gets thrown your way in that moment, you need to be able to react and deal with it appropriately. And I would say that my initial reaction of like 
I tried to deal with it. I tried, and then it just got uncomfortable. I think that reaction was okay. It was just everything that came next that I would say is really the mistake and error. Yeah. So I do want to explore that more and I'm not going to be too fixated on the visor thing, I swear. But is that something that would happen then occasionally in certain conditions or certain breathing? Or is that kind of a a surprise one-off challenge that was thrown at you there? I would say it has occurred very few times throughout my career. Um, And there's ways that you can kind of angle air and, um, you know, and it, in general, like if you can remain calm uh, when you're faced with stress, which is what we try to get pilots to do, then that reaction isn't so frequent. But for student pilots, I would say sometimes we uh, we get a little bit more worked up than probably the the more experienced pilots. Okay, so I will retract my statement or question about um, design mistake. Uh, I knew that was too harsh. But so now back to though. These lessons learned of, um, gosh, easier said than done, you know, learning to let things uh, go or at least put put it aside until the time for debrief with uh, after action review is the appropriate term. I mean, because I, I imagine if there's a mistake made, you don't want to forget about it forever. But oh, no, how, no, how do mean- you how do you put it aside long enough until it's the right time? Yeah. And, and for us, you know, we, in that moment, I kind of got to put it aside and and realize that, you know what, I've made mistakes in the past, but I'm going to focus on what's ahead. And then in the debrief. So after the flight, when we have that time to deconstruct and talk about it, now we kind of drill down into, all right, what happened? You know, what happened on that mission? Let's talk about it. Let's identify the root cause of what happened, the lessons learned, and what we're going to do differently the next time. So that, you know, the same thing doesn't, repeat itself. I think what I have struggled with, and I will say not just on this ride and throughout my career, and and quite honestly, even today is, you know, I don't like to make mistakes. It's hard. We we don't. But but I know it's a reality, right? It's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, make the mistake, learn from it. Sometimes it's a quick learning. Sometimes we can actually, you know, have the time to deconstruct and talk about it, but then don't do it again. Don't keep beating yourself up over it. And that's what I did. I was just constantly thinking about it. Oh, I flew so poorly and I'm sure I'm going to get a bad grade on this ride. And it's just, I kept beating myself up in the moment when I just needed to let it go for now and focus on the step, you know, the steps in front of me and what's coming in front of me. Um, But it, you know, it is easier said than done. We're, we're pretty hard on ourselves. And so trying to, you know, uh, learn the lesson, don't do it again, and then move on. Right, right. And you're, this, is a, this is a timely reminder you're giving me. I've made some mistakes earlier today where, my goodness, the stuff I do is not the stakes that you dealt with um, as, as a pilot. But that, you know, if, if, if the, the stakes of me making a certain mistake means like, oh, I need to go back and I wasted 90 minutes of my life now. I need to go back and repeat. Like, I... I'm still being hard on myself. It's not distracting. Well, I'm thinking about it now. I'm trying not to let it distract me from other things I need to do here today. Yeah. And it's thing. I mean, these are things that I talk to my kids about. I mean, you see it in sports, right? With the kids, like my, my kids can oftentimes beat themselves up about that one error that they made on the field and they lose sight of all the great things that they did. 
Um, I think this is a, a thing we face in our normal everyday lives. You know, we could give a perfect presentation minus, you know, one little slip up or something said wrong, or maybe I didn't answer that question so well. And what do we focus on? The one thing mm-hmm. that we didn't do well, or mm-hmm. the one person in, in the audience that's giving us the angry look, you know, where everybody else is smiling and nodding. I think sometimes we just over-focus on the mistakes or over-focus on the negative, and um, it takes time away from what we're doing. I mean, I do believe that mistakes are important, and we do have to, at some point, address them. But then, we, then we've got to like go acknowledge that we've learned it, and then we move on. I've learned the lesson. I'm not doing it again. And now I'm going to move on. I think that does help us put things behind us, right? When we take some sort of action and we feel pretty confident, I've learned it's not going to happen next time. Like you, you can feel good about that, even if, and I think that can even maybe outweigh feeling bad about the mistake. I mean, absolutely. I'm quite honestly looking back, right? I am so thankful that that happened very early in my career as a pilot because the number of times throughout my career that I was faced with difficult situations where I knew maybe something didn't go quite right or I, I did something wrong and you know I'm still flying or I'm still in the moment I'm still leading my team whatever it is you know now I've been able to I'm better equipped to just acknowledge it, recognize that I can't stay and wallow in that moment. I've right. got to continue to move forward. And then I will come back and address it. Yeah. You, you mentioned kids and sports. And I'm, I'm reminded a guest of mine from uh, episode 51 of the podcast series, Lenny Walls, who played in the NFL for a number of seasons as a cornerback. And I remember him talking about you know, again, lower stakes environment here. But um, if you make a mistake on one play, you, you've got to put it out of your mind because now 30 seconds later, the ball's going to be snapped again. Yeah. Putting it on hold until they're at the sideline during halftime, during practice the next week to do that, that sort of that cycle of debrief, review, learning, applying it to the future. You know, my I have a 10 year old who is a goalkeeper. And I asked him, I said, what, how do you feel when the ball goes in the net, when you didn't save it? And and how do you deal with that? And he said, well, mom, I mean, this is a 10 year old. And he says, I think about it and I'm a little bit mad. And I think about it until the ball is kicked off again. And then yeah. I don't think about it anymore. Uh, and I'm like, yeah. man, you're 10 years old and you figured <laughs> this out. And then after the game, we'll talk about each goal and talk about what he thinks he did well, and then what he thinks he need to work, what to work on for the next time. But the fact that he can let it go by the time that ball is kicked off, like, I wish I could do that sometimes. Yeah, no, it's something we can all try to get better at. And, um, you know, you talk about learning to let mistakes go. And that's something we can all work on. One other thing I wanted to come back to, you talked about the need to learn to stay calm under stress. Like, how how, how much of that can be taught? Was it practiced? How much of that is, let's say, inherent in the selection of fighter pilots? I think it's learned over time. I think, you know, I, I, this was, you know, during pilot training, um, you know, and still very young, very few hours. And I realized I didn't deal with that situation very well. You know, as I got more experience, more time in the airplane, right, the more competent we become, uh, we become more confident. And so it's sometimes a little bit easier than we've seen it before. We've we've been in that difficult situation that we kind of know about it in the past. And so for me, that's helped me. The more practice, the more preparation that I put in, 
I feel more calm because I can recall those moments from history of things, you know, ways that maybe I didn't do it as well. And I just, it's just a constant reminder to me, like, stay calm, take a deep breath. We talk about something in the airplane when we're air refueling. So getting gas while airborne going eh, 200 it's, miles per hour. That's unbelievable that that's and it, possible. We all just, it's this natural reaction. Like as you get closer to the boom, which is the piece that comes out from the other airplane to fill your airplane up with gas. Like it's like all of a sudden this tense, like all the young pilots will tense up. And I remember my, one of my instructors just saying calmly, he didn't know I would like, I didn't say anything, but he knew, right. He knew from experience and he just calmly said over the radio, wiggle your fingers and toes. And it was that uh-huh. reminder for me to just relax, like just relax. And so I think over time, these little nuggets have built up so that in those moments when I, all of a sudden I start feeling like tense and nervous or worried about something, I, it's a reminder to take that deep breath wiggle my fingers and toes, just relax for a second. Like you have the skills, you have the training, you've put in the work, you can deal with this. And that's something, I mean, boy, how often do you end up reminding leaders of that same idea, that same practice, if they're feeling stressed in their work, again, you know, lower stakes, but important things is uh, executives at a company. Of course. Yeah. And I I mean, I think of the times where I have led teams, you know, outside of the flying world and, you know, our lives on the line, not always, sometimes livelihoods are, but they're still critical and and difficult situations. And we shouldn't, shouldn't sell that short. I mean, we we're faced with stress in a moment. And sometimes the best thing we can do is just take that deep breath, remain calm, kind of take a minute and just, you know, before we jump in and take action, which, you know, sometimes if you act too quickly, you can make the wrong choice. You know, you can do the wrong thing. Uh, I've been there and done it and haven't been proud of it, you know, and, and have learned from it. But um, I think we all can face those moments in our personal life and our professional life. Yeah. And I can think of situations where I've made a mistake and my rush to try to fix it ended up making it worse. Sometimes yeah. with technology that happens too. Oh, absolutely. I, uh, I I can think back very specifically to situations where, you know, sometimes you rush to judgment or rush to make a decision and, you know, you can, you can make it worse. You know, you can uh, compound the problem versus just taking a minute to kind of think through it. And, uh, you know, there's, if you are under pressure and have to make a difficult decision, that's one thing. But a lot of the times, even though we put that pressure on ourselves, like we can actually take a step back. Can we take five minutes to think about it? Can we take a day? Can we take two weeks? You know, whatever it is, we don't want to be paralyzed in the decision-making process, but sometimes gathering that information and getting different perspectives helps us to make the best possible decision in that given situation. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about um, from your Air Force career um, when 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 you were awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for heroism. If, if people go and um, you know search about you, they will find you know the story of um, as I mentioned briefly in in, in the intro, um, almost being shot down over Baghdad. Is that is that a fair way of describing? That is a fair way of describing happened? it. Can can you can you tell us you know tell us that story and maybe talk about? Um, after action review, learning yeah. and, 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 and moving forward from that. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I think that for me was one of the most challenging uh, times in my life. I feel like all the hard things, all the mistakes, all the things that I had done in my life really led me to that moment to be able to take action. Um, We were over downtown Baghdad supporting our troops on the ground as we do in the A-10, which is a close air support platform. And unfortunately, on this day, uh, the weather was terrible. So we were taking a little bit more risk to be able to get below the weather to support our ground troops. Had made a decision we would only do two passes, kind of climb up, reassess. And as I was coming off target from my last pass is when I just felt and heard a loud explosion at the back of the airplane. And I knew immediately I was hit. There was no doubt in my mind. There was this bright red-orange fireball. The jet nosed over. I remember looking down at Baghdad below and just instinctively pulled back on my control stick. And uh, unfortunately, nothing happened. I mean, it was at this point completely out of control. Uh, I looked down at my ejection handles very quickly, thinking that was not what I wanted uh, and really fell back on my training of trying to analyze the situation, figure out what's going on. I realized very quickly that all the hydraulics were out of my airplane, which is what allows us to normally fly the airplane. And at this point, I had a decision to make. I was either going to have to eject, which did not sound good, or I could try to get the jet into our emergency backup system, which is what I ended up doing, was able to kind of flip the switch, get the jet back climbing again, and and get my way up and away and out of Baghdad. And, you know, that was kind of the initial first sense of relief of like, I might actually survive this and then had to fly 300 miles more back to our home base and, and now make another decision about do I land or do I try to just get the jet back to friendly territory and eject. And based on this emergency backup system, landing isn't something that we had trained for. Um, but I had an hour to fly it, felt very good about flying the airplane and uh, thankfully got the airplane back on the ground safely. But um, really life-defining moment in many ways, I think. Yeah, yeah. I've had 20 years to reflect. I mean, this was April 7th, 2003. And I think, you know, looking back, trying to assess why was I successful in that moment of over Baghdad? Like just how did, how did I maintain enough, enough sense of calm? Don't get me wrong because I listened to my voice and I was terrified in that moment, but enough sense of calm to take action. And then also to have the confidence to kind of make a decision about how I was going to execute a landing in the airplane. And I really think it came down to the preparation, the practice, and the planning for contingencies along the way. I mean, I was very prepared for that mission. We prepare because we study all of our aircraft systems. We talk about enemy threat systems. Like I had all the data. I had the knowledge. Uh, I, I knew what would happen if my systems failed. And then we kind of take it that next step, which is practicing, which in the aviation community, we talk about chair flying, which is really just visualization. We think about, we talk through the critical steps as if we're in the cockpit. And it's it's just a visualization technique that helps us for those stressful moments. Um, and then we plan for contingencies. So we don't just kind of practice and think through what happens when everything goes right. We also take the time to walk through, all right, if this doesn't go well, what are those worst case scenarios? And then what are we going to do? We had done all of that. And I think that's one of the reasons where I feel like even when everything was going wrong, even under stress and under pressure and while facing fear, I was able to make a decision, feel confident in that decision. And and really, you know, it was all because of all the hard things that I had done leading up to that moment. Yeah. 
And you touch on, you know, this idea of planning for contingencies. I mean, I think that's something that's very helpful in business or in healthcare settings. Um, having that plan, I mean, it's a way of preventing mistakes. It is because you take the time to talk through it together. And I think that's the most important thing because I think in a lot of settings, you're working together as a team, something doesn't go right. What do you do? It can be as simple as having a quick team huddle before you do the next thing, you know, just a quick team huddle. Let's talk through the things. Let's talk about most likely scenarios, most dangerous scenarios. The other thing that I find really helpful when we plan for contingencies is that we some sometimes we get so involved in our own plan and our own world that we think everything's going to go just fine and we kind of lose sight of some of those things that could go wrong. And so I like to bring in an external team um, to ask the tough questions, to maybe be, we call it a red team, to be a little bit of the devil's advocate and talk about our plan. Just somebody that maybe isn't so close to the plan that will give you that different perspective. I, I think that planning for contingencies thing, I... I do it in my everyday life because I find sometimes my mind can get so balled up and thinking about, oh, what if that happens? What if that happens? And if I just take a few minutes to go, all right, let's say it does happen. What am I going to do? And then I'm like, all right, I feel a little bit better. And I then I can let it go or at least not think about it all the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it seems like that would have this uh, this idea this red team bringing in an outside perspective to challenge things or you know have an outside perspective it sounds like that would really help entrepreneurs that would help organizations that are thinking about some big initiative because you know there's that there's that risk maybe of um you know group think mm-hmm. or just you know pe- people not being willing to challenge like maybe there's something we, we feel like we have a good plan to admit it might not be perfect um, to even invite scrutiny is not the right word, but um, a different perspective can, yeah. you know, uh, probably head off uh, an error that, um, you know, you know, people say, well, nobody saw that coming, but somebody might have uh, yeah. and it speaks to the importance of creating a safe environment where people can speak up. If, if their manager, their CEO is about to make a decision that they think is, absolutely going to succeed if someone else has a different perspective. Um, hopefully they feel safe sharing that perspective and the, they're listened to. Yeah. I, I think you, I mean, you really hit it there because I think when I look at the teams that I have been on, whether aviation or just, you know, teams that are doing other things outside of this aviation world, like the one thing that I think really connects a team together is trust and having that trust where you feel safe to provide feedback without the blame or shame, where we don't feel like we're going to be judged or punished for saying, hey, I I made a mistake. Like, I didn't do this well. You know, do we have that safe environment where people are willing to make those mistakes and share them? Because to me, that's that next step, right? You can debrief, you can talk about your mistakes with your small group, but can you even have the courage to now share it more broadly so that the rest of the team can learn from it? And that is a really hard thing to do. Um, but I think we have the ability to learn from others' mistakes when they can you know, step up, acknowledge it, talk to us about the mistake, tell us what they learned from it. I mean, this is the whole point of your podcast, but like, then we share it with others so that others can learn too. I mean that, but you've got to have trust. You've got to have that environment where people feel safe to do that. And to me, that is a hundred percent on the leader. It is the leader's role to create that environment of trust and then build that within their team. Yes. Yes. That's very well said. Um, 
And, and, and just telling people they should feel safe speaking up usually isn't enough. Like leaders really need to make sure they're responding um, the right way, a constructive way when someone does test the waters and said, you told me it was safe to challenge you. No, I'm going to challenge you. What happens next? Yeah, I, I think leaders have to set the example. I think part of it is sometimes as leaders, we have to acknowledge our own mistakes and and share that with people and let people know like, hey, I made the wrong decision here. We're going to go back and relook at this and I want your input. Um, it's things like, you know, when when those mistakes do happen, sometimes we, you know, we get a little worked up and we got to remember like, hey, if this is a safe space, we listen to the mistake, we acknowledge it, and then we we do what we said we were going to do, which is we're going to learn from it. I mean, and I granted, I will acknowledge there are varying levels of mistakes, right? Is it delinquent? Is it, you know, there are varying levels here, but um, it is about setting the example, not just at the very top, but I think this is with all the subordinate levels of leadership within the organization, because sometimes the leader at the top can be saying it all day long, but if the, the mid-level or lower level supervisors are, you know, squashing it right there or punishing or, you know, blaming, then we've kind of lost it, uh, the opportunity right. to learn from those. Right, right. Um, I, I have to ask one other question though, you brought up your decision of, do you pull the eject handle or not? And, yeah. and like, it, it's, 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 I can't even imagine being in a situation like that. Like people make decisions like, should I, should I eject myself from this job or should I stay and try to make it better? And some people, I've had people on the podcast who say, I should have quit that job earlier. Some people say, yeah, I probably, it was a mistake to quit. For, for whatever reason, right? So now in this in this life or death situation here, um, like, do, does the decision one way or another, did that get critiqued? If it was a mistake of ejecting too early or when it wasn't, quote unquote, necessary, does that get critiqued in a way that focuses on learning? I mean, like ejecting too late could be a deadly mistake mm-hmm. on that side. Can Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, you know, flying back on the way home, I I wasn't by myself, I had a flight lead, my wingman, right, was with me, and we talked a lot about it. And, um, you know, I I knew this was coming, because I I understood this emergency backup system that I was in, that there was going to be a decision to be made about landing or ejecting from the airplane. And I remember at one point, my flight lead said, all right, Casey, you need to think about if you're going to land this airplane, or if you're going to jump out. And I was like, you know, I knew it was coming. I just, I kind of wanted to ignore it for a little bit longer. And then he said, the decision is yours. He said, you're flying a single seat fighter. It's your decision, but whatever you decide, I will back you up, which was really, I mean, like empowering. And that the fact that he had that much confidence in me, it, that also gave me confidence in myself. But I, you know, I really felt confident in my training and preparation. We talked through the pros and cons. We, you know, we really had, we had time uh, to talk about the consequences, the risks, and and also for me to just get a sense of how the airplane is flying and really get a, you know, a feel for it. So it really came down to this almost gut decision of like, neither choice was great. I didn't really like either option. And I just went with kind of what felt right based on, you know, I say what felt right, like in my gut, but also just based on how, you know, I flew the airplane for an hour, got to see how it was flying. Um, I still felt like I could change my mind at the last second based on the technology of our ejection seat. Um, 
But it was one of those decisions, you know, I was still nervous about the decision I had made, but I also felt confident, if that makes sense. I mean, it was just a bit of like, tough decision. I mean, I'm hoping I'm making the right one. And, you know, after the fact, after all was said and done, I really did a lot of thinking about my decision making process. I have since shared that we have something called crew resource management or cockpit resource management, where we talk about kind of those things. So it's been shared across our community just to help people understand. Um, I'm sure there are people that that think that I should have ejected and not attempted to land the airplane. I mean, I, I landed it successfully, but there were still a few people that said it wasn't worth the risk. And, and I, I get that. That's fine. They can have that opinion. I, I might've said that before I got in the airplane, but once I was in the airplane and went through everything and got a feel for how it was flying, I, I just, I made a, a different choice. And, um, you know, we try to share the lessons and and talk about it. I learned the lessons from the pilots who came before me and who sadly did not survive trying to land in the airplane. Um, but I learned the lessons. I did it based on what I had learned from them, based on learning from their mistakes. Um, so yeah, I think I I think we really tried to pull a lot of the lessons learned from this. Uh, I think it's going to be dependent on every situation, but really, again, trying to analyze the thought process, yeah. the decision making was what was most important. Mm-hmm. So again, we are uh, joined today. Our guest is Kim Casey Campbell. Her book is Flying in the Face of Fear, A Fighter Pilot's Lessons on Leading with Courage. Um, I want to ask a couple other questions before we wrap up here. You mentioned being the only woman in your squadron. Do I remember that right? Yes. And I, I, I did look up the first U.S. Air Force fighter pilot, I believe, was 1993. So there was... when when when. I mean, there was a very small number of you. How how many were you uh, when uh, I, across the Air Force? Women? Yeah, when I started pilot training, I think there were roughly 35 female fighter pilots out of about 3,500. Um, so there were women that came before me. You know, I'm I'm thankful that they kind of laid the groundwork. Uh, there were still very few of us. I was the only female fighter pilot in my squadron. Um, you know, I, I personally put a lot of pressure on myself because I didn't want to make mistakes. I didn't want to fail. I felt like if I did that, I would ruin it for the women that followed me. Um, it was just a lot of pressure I put on myself. But what I realized is that any new person, any new wingman on a, in a fighter squadron, any new person in a team or organization is going to be judged in some way, right? People are kind of curious and watching to see what you do, how you respond, how you act, and really, for me, I just focused on being fully credible and capable in the airplane, and uh, realized that once I did did that, that you know the pilots in my squadron didn't care; they didn't care at all. They just cared that I was credible and capable. Yeah. So, are there lessons that you share with women in the private sector who are navigating male-dominated environments? If they're the only on their executive team, or you know, it's uh, what 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 lessons or advice do you do share with leaders today? I think, um, you know, number one is credibility, you know, be good at what you do, put in the work, have a good attitude. Um, But I also think, um, and this is sometimes easier said said than done, but try and, you know, make sure you're still authentic and true to who you are as a person um, and not lose your identity in this. And I think that that was harder for me. It was something that I struggled with, um, but I realized that I was happier. Um, I was more, you know, content in my role. and when I was authentic and true to who I was. And that really came through um, when I took on leadership roles and and being a mom and a wife and a fighter pilot and doing all of these things and recognizing that it was okay to let people see me for all of those things. 
Uh, so I think that's one. I also say, you know, find your wingman, right? Find your tribe, find people in on your team that will support you, that will have your back. Um, you know, these pilots in my squadron, I looked at them as my brothers, you know, they would do anything for me and I would do anything for them. Um, but finding that, and it may not be within your team, right? If you can't find it within your team, sometimes we have to look elsewhere for mentors or coaches or support groups or networks, whatever that is. But to have somebody that you can trust and share things with, and you know, if it's not in your family or your personal network, the ability to reach out because it is hard to be the one or the only. Um, I mean, I, I put a lot of pressure on myself and, and thankfully I had people around me that supported me and believed in me. Um, so I think, you know, those are some of the big things, quite honestly, I think it's probably advice that I would give to men and women, uh, you know, in whatever career field they're doing. Sure. Sure. Um, I, I will put a link uh, to Casey's website in the show notes. I hope people will go check that out and learn more, um, you know, speaking clips and learn more about the book and all, but um, I, as I posted on LinkedIn, yeah, I, I wanted to have you on the podcast, and then I saw on your website, oh, she's absolutely the right guest here, um, where it says on your website, how can we improve if we don't learn from our mistakes? So I think you've you know, driven home some really um, outstanding points and lessons about that um, here today. But I was going to ask you maybe as a final question here, there was a video on the website where you think about you know, leaders and and what they what they need to do. I thought this this really stood out. I'm just I'm going to quote you and ask you to you know kind of share more thoughts on this. That uh, vulnerability isn't about weakness; it's about being open to uncertainty. And I thought that was a really insightful way of saying that. So t- tell us a little bit more about you know if you try to talk to leaders about vulnerability, you might get. Is is that where someone scowls up at you from the audience you mentioned earlier? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I think sometimes we hear the word vulnerability and we think about weakness. We think about like, you know, a negative connotation. And, you know, what I've realized is, you know, vulnerability is about being open to uncertainty and risk. It is about, you know, having the courage to ask your team for ideas Vulnerability is about admitting that you don't have all the answers and seeking input. Vulnerability is admitting mistakes and being willing to learn from them. It is admitting mistakes and allowing others to learn from them as well. Um, So vulnerability is a strength. I find that the ability to be vulnerable in our leadership role, it's hard, it's uncomfortable, but it is absolutely not a weakness. It has been a strength. It has allowed me to connect with my team in a way that I didn't realize was even possible. And I say that telling you that it still makes me uncomfortable. It is hard for me to do to kind of put things out there and and to be open. But I've realized that is what has helped me create trust. It is what helps me create connections with my team. And it creates this environment now where now people are willing, they've seen you be vulnerable. They're willing to kind of open up themselves, provide new, innovative, creative ideas, or to admit mistakes or to talk about things in the, the team or organization that maybe isn't going as well as you thought they were. That only comes about because you've created this environment of trust. Um, so yeah, I, I believe in it. I've um, I've seen it happen real time um, with you know working with both small and large teams. Um, it is absolutely um, a way to connect and build trust. Yeah, and 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 that word vulnerability. I mean, I've, I've spent more time thinking about that word in the last year, learning more about psychological safety. 
and and uh, Tim Clark, who's been a guest on the podcast here, his book, uh, The Four Stages of Psychological Safety. I'll throw that out there as a recommendation for everybody. Um, sorry to do that in front of another author. And oh, no, it's a great book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, he he emphasizes that, yeah, vulnerability, if we go to the dictionary, it just means, um, you know, it's actions that would create exposure to risk or harm. You flying the A-time warthog was a vulnerable act because there was physically exposure to risk or harm, uh, especially in combat. And that is definitely not weakness. <laughs> Yeah, that's a I mean, that's a great, great way of looking at it. I think it's just, it's about putting ourselves out there. It's about, you know, you, it requires courage to be vulnerable. It's it requires courage to step up and do those hard things. But there is payoff and benefits and strength on the other side. And like you said, um, earlier, uh, it starts with leaders. And um, when leaders can create the conditions where there's less risk of harm, for speaking up, for admitting mistakes, for challenging your leader, then we're going to be better off for it. Easier said Absolutely. than done. Yeah, easier said than done sometimes. But, you know, you create that environment where people are willing to share mistakes, to share the lessons learned, to you know, so that we can all do it better. You know, we talk about sharing mistakes, which lifts others. And once you've done that, now your team can excel because you've created an environment where we're all learning from each other, supporting each other. Yeah, it could be a competitive environment, but we're still supporting each other and learning from each other because then the team itself excels. Yeah. Well, Casey, thank you so much. Um, our, our guest again has been Colonel Kim Casey Campbell. Her book is Flying in the Face of Fear, A Fighter Pilot's Lessons on Leading with Courage. Um, thank you so much for the conversation and you know the deep dive on mistakes and learning from mistakes and your experiences and, and what you're helping leaders with today. Really, really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks again to KC for being a fantastic guest today. To learn more about her, look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake 218. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.